Welcome to Real Life Rescues, a podcast that's going to go behind the scenes and take an in-depth look into the operational and personal accounts of EMS first responders from Israel's largest fully volunteer EMS provider, United Atzala. Many volunteers available in Beit Shemesh across from the Noach Ayalat trails. And units available in Tamaria near the Kinara for an 11-year-old boy pulled into the water possibly drowning. Naval 7 is in the water with the boat. Backup units needed. Hi, and welcome to another episode. I'm Raphael. And I'm Dovi Maisel. And today uh, we're talking about kind of a whole lot of different things. We're going to do a little bit more follow-up on the war. We're going to get, we're still going in. We're day 108, 108, I think. now. And also talk about some of the effects it's having on society as a whole, on us as first responders, now that we're you know, more than three months into this thing. I mean, how it affects us as we go out on calls. Because when you respond now, as opposed to, I think, before October 7th, you're always looking over your shoulder a little bit. There's always like something in your mind that's, that's a little bit different. And I think that's okay. Whether it's recognizing that the vast majority of people in the country are suffering you know, psychological and, and, and mental trauma from the thing that's taking place, or you have situations where you know, you're going out, and, and I had a call like this just this past week where I'm going out to respond to a medical emergency with a person who's just got up from mourning his son who was killed. And, you know, how do you interact with that? Obviously, you keep everything professional, but you have to understand where they are when they're your partner at the scene and what their mental state is and how that's possibly going to affect the care you're giving to your patient. Well, actually, they're saying now that the impact of this October 7th attack and the war following it is going to result in one in every three Israelis suffering from PTSD. As if we didn't have enough already. <laughs> exactly. And and we can actually see it in connecting to what you're saying, Rafael, is this situation that everyone here is experiencing this. We need to understand that in Israeli society, there isn't one person, not one family, that doesn't know someone or related to someone or through the, in the community with someone who has fallen, either on October 7th attacks or in the war to follow. Correct. And many of our, of our first responders fell as well on, on the day of. I don't know if we mentioned this last time when we talk, spoke about the war, but on the day of, we had two of our volunteers that were killed. One, while uh, well, both performing their duty trying to save lives of others, but one actually treating a woman who was shot. And then as he was treating her, he was shot himself and killed. And then... Later on, we had two other volunteers who were killed, other several who were injured and suffered varying degrees of injuries. One was hit by a rocket. And some of our, some of our volunteers who were drafted as paramedics into the IDF and then killed, unfortunately, in combat. Yeah. Um, some of them, parents killed. of children. And yeah, it's, very, it's a very challenging situation here. It is right. because this, it's, it's nothing that we've experienced First of all, starting with the October 7th attack and the magnitude of the attack and the barbarism of the attack, but also being over 100, almost 110 days at war. And when we talk about war, it means that there are still over 300,000 Israelis, friends, colleagues of, of, our, of, of ours here that are- yeah, People who we work with every day. One in every seven volunteers is in the reserves now fighting for, for the freedom of this country. And, and and many and, of them in the medical corps. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it, it really is challenging. And also here in Israel, there are 300,000 refugees from over 60, 70 towns 
in northern Israel and southern Israel, which are evacuated from their homes for now three and a half months. Yeah. And are, are in hotels or whatever. And the country's been kind of amazing in that really, really quickly, it sort of got together and, and started because this happened right after we like were saying the high holidays and, and the holiday break back in October, everyone was coming back to school. So very quickly, the government got together, organizations got together, nonprofits from all different places got together and started bringing the refugees a lot of food and dealing with schools, but also on the medical side of things and helping them deal with a lot of their medical needs. Uh, the, day, the day to day. I mean, just think about it. You have your family practitioner or the GP or whatever that, that you need to take your kids to when they have a throat ache. What do yeah. you do? Right. Where do you go now that you're in a hotel halfway across the country and, and your GP is in a different hotel halfway across the country? And where do you go? Where do you turn to? So, you know, our organizations obviously stepped in and helped out a lot with that, providing care packages with the, with the families as well. And one of the other things that I want to sort of, I guess, take it back to the, I guess, the mental state of, of who, what we're doing as first responders and how we're dealing with it um, in our own so that we can continue to go out to calls on the day-to-day, protecting the home front. And, and I guess just to put in perspective, when we say we're talking about things like war, this isn't a war that... You know, putting into into the idea of, of North America that North America has ever faced. It's not a war in a distant country where we're sending soldiers to a distant country. This is a war on the home front right here in our towns, cities, villages. This is a war protecting home. While you're in the front lines in Gaza, only an hour's drive away are your wife and kids. Right. And that's to understand when we talk about home. And for some people, it's it's 10 minutes away, not even an hour or five minutes away from those who live closer to the to the borderline there. So it, it's taking its toll in a lot of different ways. And we'll go back to the incident I had I had yesterday with a fellow ambulance responder who was you know, not feeling so well over the weekend and slipped and fell while he was at home. I hit his head on his sink and lost consciousness for about a moment, according to his wife, and then came back to semi-consciousness was not with it, had no short-term memory, uh, could not remember one thing from one moment to the next, continually asked the same questions over and over again. Obviously, we initiated concussion protocol. His vital signs were actually okay. We didn't see any sorts of bleeding or any uh, bump on his head signifying the head trauma, but we knew it had happened. So we were able to initiate concussion protocol. Our plan was to scoop and run and get him to the hospital as fast as we could, especially because we were talking about a friend and colleague. And... I was the first responder in the room. I got there with my uh, ambicycle, I think in 45 seconds. So he was just down the street from, from my house. And the next responder, like I mentioned earlier, was someone who had just lost his son in the war. I had just gotten up from morning literally the day before. Totally with it, totally clear. You know, Put everything into, not quite autopilot, but that, that idea, professional level across the board, really was quite shocking. It took me a step back to, to sort of, I think I was more affected by yeah, it than he was. Sometimes, sometimes when we see our own that, that are, that are suddenly in the situation, it affects us differently. Absolutely. I mean, and his, the, the, his son, the person who was, was killed in the war was also a paramedic and, and was, was killed with that. And, and was also a close friend of mine. And we handled the case as best we could. The patient, unfortunately could not understand why we were trying to get him to the ambulance it was trying to struggle against us a little bit, but we managed to, to get him to the ambulance without too much of an incident. And I heard back later that, like, thankfully, he's, he's doing okay and, and getting better. Concussion. Yeah. But, you know, everything else, thankfully, came out negative. But it was just like we all walked into that scene carrying something, which we don't normally do. And, and 
you know, whether it was my friend or whether it was me who would, was trying to react to him and trying to understand what exactly needed to do, be done for uh, my fellow responder, there, were, there was something extra there. And we had to put it aside because of the current situation and deal with what was needed to be done. And, and that's sort of our ethos here in Yenet itself continuously is the, you know, we, we respond regardless of who we are and who the person we're responding to is. Of course, if the person needs help, we're, we're there to help them. And we do it together. You know, Jew, Muslim, Christian, Druze, Baha'i, everybody, we're all responding together and we're all standing united in the face of whatever's taking place in the face of the war. But there's the extra added stress. And I think it's the kindness that we're showing, which I think is, is very much helping alleviate some of that stress for each other. Yes, it's 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 a complicated situation. It's a complicated situation, uh, knowing that first of all, a lot of our own are affected, both physically and mentally. And to see what we could do in order to, uh, we always say, you know, helping others makes us feel better. And and I think that across the board, that I agree with that a hundred percent. And we see the extra mile that people are going now because of this situation. All right, and coming from. Going back to my psychotrauma training, feel when when we we help another person and makes us feel better. It's incredibly important because it builds connectivity, it builds a sense of purpose, and those are really the things that help alleviate a lot of the precursors of PTSD and trauma. Whereas you know we're alleviating by the fact that we're still doing and we still have a mission to continue helping. We're alleviating that a sense of helplessness and hopelessness and loneliness that can really build up to the sense of acute stress reactions, and then leading to PTSD. However, the question then always comes in, what happens when you're not out on call? What happens when you're not there with a the team, when your shift is over, You know, taking it a little bit further, hopefully when the war ends, what's the next step from there and how do we begin healing? Nobody can even think about the day after here yet because the war ain't over yet. Right. And we're still looking at the preparation for a northern front here, which when thinking about potential of uh, repercussions of war, the threat of uh, Hezbollah on the northern border here poses a, a much more significant threat on Israeli society and the state of Israel much more significantly than the one in the south. Talking about a threat of thousands of missiles every single day, precise missiles targeted at central Israel, Tel Aviv, Herzliya, you know, the, the big metropolis that might be attacked. And we're talking about, you know, preparation here for doomsday. I mean, just last week, the health ministry is part of preparation for the Northern Front without scaring anyone, just uh, notified all of the hospitals in Israel to prepare for uh, um, a, a, a full week a, without power. A, not only that, but the, to prepare for thousands of injured people to arrive within a period of less than 24 hours, to operate like an island without getting any support of uh, energy, electricity, food, medical supplies for a week's time at least. So, you know, it doesn't really leave us much optimism here, though we try. All right. So how are, how are we preparing for a lot of things? Maybe we can discuss that. I know we we opened up our own um, sort of northern secondary so uh, logistically, logistics centers. We're, we're looking at damages to um, significant infrastructures here, highways and things like that. So we already pushed a lot of tons of equipment to the northern uh, front, security areas, bunkers and things like that. A lot of uh, stocking up our, our northern branches where volunteers will not be able to get any major support from the center. We also set up uh, rotations of ambulance shifts to be backup support for these uh, situations. And also even building 
backup technology solutions for communications because we know that one of the primary targets will be communications, data, and cellular towers and things like that. So we're talking of going back to old school, two-way radios with relay stations. And besides that, satellite communications to be set up in, in these areas for a situation like this. All right. So let's focus a little bit on, on that preparation. Firstly, I think one of the main successes we had with the South, and I think with the North as well, is that the first responders were already on the ground because they were living it. They were there. It was their communities. So they know their communities very well. They're protecting their own communities and their own families. Obviously, it's taking place in their cities. And that's part of the preparation is, is having the right people in the right location who know not only the terrain, but the population, the people you're dealing with, local connections, in order to be able to pull off some of the things we pulled off in the South. Hopefully, we won't need it. So the, the idea is understanding that in a war situation, everything boils down to the local municipal leadership. It's like a lot of independent little governments that know that they're on their own for the first few days, no matter what. And the ability to be a community-based organization is exactly the core of our added value there, is that you know the community, you know the facilities, you know the people. And therefore, when things happen, then you're able to respond much more effectively uh, without that national support. Right. And that's um, actually why the organization was created in the first place. When we started after the Second Lebanon War in 2006, we banded together all the different groups in order to be able to create a national organization for national response. You know, So now we're seeing how effective that was and can be if we need to put it to use again. Well, that's the idea. Today we have 7,000 first responders, doctors, paramedics, EMTs, which are all divided up into, I think it's 256 municipalities in Israel. And in every municipality, there's the EOC, the Emergency Operations Center, and Roundtable in the emergency center there. And our volunteers have representation at that table so that when disaster will strike or war, then the ability to, you know, interoperability and work across platform there with all the local agencies becomes just more effective. That saying also is plugging into that technology. So technology of communications, we know that there might be significant infrastructure damages. So whereas our regular day-to-day -day communications are based off of data, POC, a PTT of your cellular, we have built a, a, a we're in the process of we're, building, we're building. A, a significant old school antennas, a radio uh, system, which will give us a redundancy of communication. And, and it's piggybacking and, off of the current antenna setup somewhat. Well, the current antenna setup of our base communications is over cellular. cellular. Right. So all cellular towers, we work with all carriers across platform. Um, but if cellular towers will be knocked out, then we need to have a backup system. And that's based off of radio antennas and those spread out throughout the country, you know, with walkie talkies, you all know them, two-way radios um, working off of the antennas. However, we do have them plugged into the technology. So whereas some of the towers might be down, they'd relay over to the two-way radios and those through a bridge are plugged into the cellular system and technology that we use. So it's kind of interesting and, 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 and gives right. us- And it gives it the same device, meaning we don't have to use a second device. No, 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 we do. We do? We do. We okay. have the old school two-way radios oh, right. as an additional device. Obviously not every volunteer has those because we have 7,000 devices, which are Android-based devices, mm -hmm. uh, rugged Android-based devices that have our radio communications and our medical documentation and the, and the Uber app and all of it on it. But these are old school two-way radios that in the back end 
I mean, not, not every volunteer has, but every chapter that we have, and we have 90 chapters, 350 teams. So every team has a number of two-way radios. So if all other communications fail, they transition over to the two-way radios and are able to continue operation and responding in the field. Wow. Hey, so we talked about the uh, communications a lot, but we also have uh, a whole lot of new equipment that we came out because of the things that we saw in October 7th, where we're trying to make sure that all the volunteers can operate like an island for as long as possible. It's, it's called lessons learned and implementing on the fly. While we don't have much time, it's been less than four months and we've established understandings from this terrible experience of things that we need to implement immediately. For example, the most basic thing is what we saw while on the October 7th attack, 25 towns were infiltrated by thousands of terrorists and responders were treating on the ground hundreds and hundreds, actually thousands of people injured gunshot wounds, blast injuries from RPG missiles and anti-tank missiles. A lot of shrapnel injuries. A lot of shrapnel injuries. So we used thousands of tourniquets, cat tourniquets, packing dressings, uh, chest seals, and things like that. We also saw that there weren't enough resources for transport to hospital, meaning when you're treating dozens of victims on the ground with tourniquets and bandages, and you look to the right and to the left, and you don't see an ambulance that can take them to the hospital, what do you do? You end up throwing them into civilian cars and having them drive to the hospital because there is no other help. And pulling people out from houses Two, three, four people carrying a person out is something that we saw and said, this is not something that we can tolerate moving forward. So we right. made it- and It takes a lot of resources and it takes a lot of time. So so we made an emergency order of 15,000 tactical patient movers. I think that's the- We call them stretchers. They're, they're foldable stretchers. It's, yes, stretchers. It's patient movers. It's a tactical stretcher that everyone, every volunteer now has in their own car- in the ambucycle and the ambulances, whatever it is, they have these foldable stretchers that fold up into like a nothing. And it's, it's basically a piece of material, which a number of people can hold either two or four. Yeah, straps. And imagine you have a, you have a patient. It's, I think they call them patient movers in the States. They, might. might. <laughs> you know, imagine you have a patient lying on bed. How do you get them to the bed of the ambulance? You usually pick up the sheet of the bed that they're lying on and carry them in that. So it's essentially that. It's a piece of material that's reinforced with handles on the sides that you can fold up and collapse into the size of a bed sheet and stick it in your med kit and carry it with you. Incredibly ingenious device. And again, we hope we never have to use them. We definitely hope we won't need to use them. Another thing is while we're recording this, there is our first exercise with our brand new field hospitals that are pop-up field hospitals. They're actually inflatable. There are these massive, massive sized tents that we're able to uh, deploy in certain areas. Once again, we're thinking island. No ability to transport to a near hospital because there is no near hospital and there's no ability to treat. So obviously we need to have protected sites for the teams, but triage centers unfortunately will be in the open. These inflatable field hospitals that were designed specifically to our needs with the triage and like a funnel system that enables us to triage the patients, bring them in, treat them. And from there, whatever possible uh, air left out and whatnot, continue treatment there. So that was another lesson that we learned. Mobile mass casualty response vehicles, which we're now adding additional units to be deployed throughout the country. The, these mass casualty response vehicles each carry 40 stretchers, ALS kits, BLS kits, generators, lighting systems, uh, fuel supplies, and whatever needed for, for any area that we need to set up a triage center where we can treat people in the field. 
We saw those in use on October 7th when treatments did not end within a couple of hours, but went into the night hours and having those mobile lighting systems that we had set up with the generators enabled us to treat hundreds and hundreds of people into the night between October 7th and 8th. These kits ready to go. It's like plug and play. You set up on this intersection outside of a town that was overtaken by terrorists, and we were able to treat dozens and dozens and dozens of patients this way and save their lives. Right. And, you know, part of the the way that this whole war started was by the use of drones and similar tactics were used in Ukraine and, and Russia. So, you know, we, we haven't let that go by the wayside either. And we, we developed, a, we've been developing for a while our own drone unit. But what we've kind of been enabling the drone unit to be able to do now, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're starting to be able to deliver medical supplies with the drones themselves. So it's not massive medical supplies. It's more like kits with tourniquets, bandages, and and life-saving equipment that we can uh, fly into an area that's been affected. Because uh, a few of the instances that we had was in a few of the towns down south in the villages, we had triage centers that were set up by volunteers' homes in their front yard because there were terrorists in the village and they couldn't weren't able to evacuate. And to mobilize equipment into these centers was something that we were limited with. So now... Uh, implementing some larger size drones with the ability to carry 15 pounds or 10 pounds and 15 pounds of equipment enables us to move more, uh, you know, blood stopping equipment and and things like that into the, into these areas in a safe manner, because at the time, again, what we saw on October 7th is a lot of the first response vehicles were targeted. And we talked about that last time and therefore we weren't able to get the medical equipment in a safe way. So now the drones as we begin to to get more of them and implement them, will be a little bit of a, of a game changer for those people who need the medical supplies in those trauma centers should they occur. And you know, it wasn't just that. I think uh, we even had a defibrillator transported on one. So that was in the Kinneret. That was in the sea. Yeah, uh, uh, out to our boat. Not connect. Not connected to the we war actually, specifically. Not connected to the war. We actually did that with um, a life reserver. A life reserver with the drone into the middle of the of the pond where the people who are drowning were saved by it. Really cool stuff. All right. So the use of technology has definitely become a, a major factor here. Developing new equipment that's functional in these island-type situations, the inflatable hospital, the stretchers, making sure that there's enough tourniquets going around. I know we've delivered more tourniquets and more bandages to all the volunteers across the country so that they have a not, stockpile not, of their own. And not to mention thousands of kits of protective gear, bulletproof vests and helmets that we're now right. uh, deploying took time to receive them as well as small compact trauma kits to go in addition to the medical bags that are being that every volunteer usually carries uh we have one smaller kit which is a grab and go it's a sort of like a flak kit if i'm not mistaken i think they're called you know they can attach them to the the thigh to the belt keep it in the car or, or wherever similar to a medical kit but much smaller to be able to take and carry very very quickly and of course stocked full with all the equipment we'll need in a pinch when a severe trauma instance comes up. So that is sort of is like trying to take lessons learned from October 7th and implement on the fly. And in the interim, we're continuing to train more and more MCI drills and exercises, a lot of trauma exercises, because we saw those who were trained well knew how to perform well and saved lives. So that's our, our major focus now and hoping that we will not need to uh, implement all of these lessons learned. Yeah, that's very much the hope right now. We hope things uh, stay quiet and quiet down. And that's really it at this point. Uh, But stay tuned for more updates coming from us here in Israel. And 
Thank you again for listening. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And we hope to have you back soon. Real soon. Keep you posted.